So Angelus Arian writes, she says, in many shamanic societies, if you came to a shaman or a medicine person complaining of being disheartened, dispirited, or depressed, they would ask you one of four questions. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? Or when did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? So those are wonderful questions because often when we come to retreat we are a bit dispirited or disheartened or depressed or at the very least we're tired. And it's interesting to look at, you know, where did this start and and even more interesting, why are we here? The Buddha lived in nature under trees and in the forest. He was born under a tree and enlightened under a tree and he died under a tree. And often we're encouraged to let nature be our teacher. And of course here at Spirit Rock we have a wonderful teacher, lots of them around us in the trees and the weather and the creatures. So here's one of my favorite teachings from nature. I get to spend quite a lot of time on the big island of Hawaii and not too long ago <coughs> I was <clears throat> on the, over near Kona in, in a little village called Puako with some friends and one of the friends said, you have to come and, at sunset and see this thing that I want to show you. And so we went down to the ocean at sunset and we walked out on the rocks and there were tide pools out on the rocks and she said, okay, we come over here and stand here and watch. And so as we stood there and looked at this quite large tide pool, maybe twice the size of this platform that I'm sitting on, in came a great big sea turtle, the Honu, we call them there. And then there was a second sea turtle, and then there was a third and a fourth and a tenth and a twelfth. And pretty soon some of them were stacked up on each other. And apparently every night at sunset, the sea turtles come to this tide pool to rest and to seek refuge. It's a place where they can rest and feed. The big fish, the sharks especially, can't get there. And they're safe. So we all, when we're dispirited and disheartened and trying to figure out which end is up in our lives, we need places and times of refuge refuge from all of the storms and difficulties of our lives. And we live in an extraordinarily difficult world right now. There's so much conflict and there's so many wars and the whole difficulty with the economy and the environment. And it's, it's clear that we need places of safety and it's a constantly hurried culture where we're you know, bent on fitting more into every moment and to every space. So last night when we came, Howie offered you the refuge, refuges, the refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and 
in a way we offered you refuge in the spirit rock tide pool. And so here we've come, some of you have come back periodically for many, many times. There's some of you who have sat a lot of retreats. And some of you have come here into this place of refuge for the very first time. And there are centers like this all over the world. It's really quite wonderful to know that almost no no matter where you are, you can find a place, a retreat center, that's held as a place that you can come um, and be relatively safe and reflect on your life. And we come to wake up, or perhaps we come to heal, or we come to seek out deep truths in our hearts and minds. Sometimes we come to be in community, to practice with a group of people rather than practicing alone. Sometimes, sometimes we come just to rest. You know, Every now and then I run into somebody who comes here and they say, I just want to rest. I'm so tired. And so we come to find you know, the refuge that's here, and then also the refuge uh, that we could, can locate in our own hearts and minds and bodies. I know in my early retreats, I thought back when I was thinking about this talk, you know, why, why did I come back over and over and over again? And I actually, I don't remember why I went back over and over and over again, you know? It seemed to be doing something. It seemed it felt good to be there, and it seemed to be helpful. And then I remembered, you know, Buddhism is all about the ending of suffering. We talked about that last night. And my friend Sylvia Borstein sometimes likes to say, maybe we don't get to a complete ending, but at least there's less. And I think that was true for me, that I began to see that as I as I located this place of stillness and quiet and listened to the teachings of the Buddha, that there was, in fact, less suffering in my life. So in all likelihood, that's partly why you're here, is that you came either knowing or suspecting that it would be safe and that you could perhaps at least lessen your suffering. And I noticed today, uh, we were looking over the interview sheets preparing to start our interviews tomorrow. And I noticed how many of you talked about lives that were too busy, you know, that you really wanted to slow down. And people talked about making career changes, and many people talked about different kinds of health issues that had come up, or issues centering around fatigue and, and needing to find that place of ease. So here's a Zen story that we can play with a bit. In this story, a monk is sweeping the grounds of the temple. It's possible that some of you are doing some sweeping out here on the patio, I don't know. And another monk came by and he looked at him and he said, too busy, too busy. And the first monk, the sweeper, said, you should know there's one who is not busy. And the second monk just didn't believe that at all. He said, if that's true, there's a second moon. And the first monk held up the broom and he said, which moon is this? So this is one of those wonderful Zen stories or koans that are designed to make your mind struggle. So if you're sitting there going, what? That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And of course, even just thinking about the notion, you know, one who is not busy. 
What a concept, one who is not busy. What a wonderful refuge that would be for most of us, I think, if we could find that place. And what is this, the broom being the, the second moon of not busy? What is earth does that mean? So when I first ran into that story, it actually was the title of a day-long um, retreat here at Spirit Rock. And, and I kept chewing on, you know, how could it be? And what would it be like? And, and then around the same time, I ran into someone in my community in Santa Cruz who said to me, I'm not busy, and I intend to stay that way. And I was utterly amazed. How could any be, anybody be not busy and intend to stay that way? Everybody I know is busy, right? We're all busy. And how we talked this morning about how we even identify as busy. That's, that's who we are, you know? And we have full appointment books and PDAs. And every day Google sends me my calendar and reminds me of the things that I need to do in case I've forgotten. And my grandchildren have schedules and they have play dates. And, you know, it's not very often anymore that even children have. Remember those lost afternoons that we used to have when you'd kind of wander off into the woods behind your house or you'd get on your bicycle and you'd go off and your mom wouldn't know where you were for a while? And, and we would just, you know, be kind of outside of time, really. And so we've become truly human doings and not human beings, as we often say. And, and, and often busyness becomes a kind of a defense, but it's not really a true refuge. So here, you know, you've come to a halt, right? Nobody's, somebody turned in their cell phone, but then it seemed to go back home again. So. You know, maybe you haven't come to a complete halt, but we've invited you to come to a complete halt and to not be busy. It's really amazing sometimes to just see as everybody begins to slow down, walking more slowly. Every now and then I come on clumps of people who are watching deer or turkeys or one day walking up from the dining hall at a retreat. There was a whole circle of people standing in the path. I thought, what are they doing? They're all staring down at the ground. I kind of looked, you know, and then I looked. And then I saw that right in the middle of the circle of people, there was a little hole. And every now and then, this little head would pop up, a little gopher, you know. And and he'd look around, and he'd say, oh, no, and he'd go back down in again. And then a few minutes later, he'd stick his head up, and everybody was utterly wrapped and they had nothing better to do than to watch that hole to see if the gopher would come up one more time, you know. It's wonderful. The only thing that's busy here is your mind, right? That keeps going on. So each of you was wise enough to know that it would be really good to come here. You took this time. It's, an, it's even an odd time. Howie and I have been talking about what is this a retreat that goes from Monday night to Saturday morning? It's never been done before at Spirit Rock. It's kind of a weird little chunk of time. And 60 of you know this is a good idea. I need to come here into this, this sweet territory of silence that Angelus Arian talks about. You, know, you knew that maybe you could find comfort in the sweet territory of silence. 
And so we are spending hours, maybe some of you have figured out how many already, sitting still with your eyes closed, you know, and then you walk very slowly for some more hours, clearly not going anywhere, as Howie said this morning. There's a story from the early years at, at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, where there's a nice curved drive out in front of the main building, and it's a place where a lot of people like to walk. So, you know, on any given day of the week, there may be six or eight or ten or twelve people out there, each of them with their little special chunk of land where they're walking back and forth, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And one day the mailman came while everyone was walking. And this was in the early years. He hadn't had time to get used to it, I think. Or maybe he was a new mailman. And he went into the office, with, put his sack of mail down, and he looked at the woman in the office and he said, it's so sad. It's just so sad. Those poor people. What is wrong with them? So it does kind of look that way, you know. It does. And the instructions, and there aren't even really too many of those, it's pretty simple, are just giving us what we need to help us to rest here, in this moment, in this very present moment, in this body, doing nothing, just being here. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. We had that wonderful question this morning. You know, what is this about being here? And it reminded me of a, of a time years and years ago when I went to see Ram Das. And Ram Das was talking about, you know, be here. That was one of his big things. And um, he said, you know, it's not a mistake that we're here. We're not here to try to figure out about how to get out of here. You're here to be here. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing here, just to be here. What happens when instead of trying to get out of here, we, go, we take our attention and we go in, we penetrate our experience with our attention and see what we can see. So by now, by the end of this first day, you've probably realized that it takes a certain amount of skill to stop, right? It doesn't happen so easily, actually. And it's simple, it's easy to say, stop, sit still, give your attention to the breath, walk back and forth, pay attention to your feet while you're walking. That's about it, right? Come back every time you wander off. Simple. One of my people in Santa Cruz one year, a woman with children and a job, decided that for her practice for a while, when she came home from work late in the day, what she was going to do was do nothing for 15 minutes. Nothing. And she said, you know, it was remarkably difficult. Because she wasn't even going to meditate. So she wasn't going to get out her cushion and put her butt on it and fold her legs up and do that. She was just going to do nothing. And doing nothing is actually really, really hard. In the natural world, there are times of stopping, right? We have seasons, things 
bloom and you know produce fruit and then we harvest it or they fall off and then they kind of all the leaves drop and and things are quiet for a while and then it happens all over again we have the daytime and then it and then once upon a time nights used to be dark they're not so dark anymore i've noticed flying over cities sometimes how incredibly light they are and in those really really dark nights you could see all the amazing stars which you still can if you're in a place where there aren't so many lights and there's you know winter uh, it gets cold and wet and people go indoors there are tribal customs of going off during times of initiation on vision quests and solitude in the mountains and the forests and the jungle or women during their times uh, when they were menstruating having time apart which you know gave them some time to, for rest and reflection and and that those times of stopping were are woven into the fabric of the natural world and into the fabric of simpler cultures than ours but sometimes life also creates those pauses right that there are times of stopping sometimes there's an accident you know when i had a car accident a couple of years ago that slowed me down for a period of many weeks or sometimes there's a surgery or an illness and and your body you know insists that you have to stop for a while or sometimes in these days people being laid off or furloughed and then you know i've i've heard a number of people say well i think this is a good time to sit a long retreat you know i haven't had a chance to do that and i'm not working right now so i'll go sit for a month or two or three sometimes someone dies and and then we slow down and go through that process of grieving we're forced to take time to stop and to heal and you know it's interesting isn't it because even when that happens do we go oh good not so often you know maybe once in a while like the people who decide to sit a retreat but often often we struggle against it like something's bad or wrong and i shouldn't be doing this and i should get better faster so i can get back and be busy again i guess is the whole idea but you're here and so there's a way in which because you're here i know that you know and i know that we've begun to value those times of quiet and we've make them our own but the zen story actually points to something else because it's not just about stopping you know he didn't just stop and say well i'm not busy you know he picked up the broom right and so it really is pointing i think towards finding a different stance towards the activity of our lives how to be not busy even when we are busy you know it it points towards learning some kind of place of presence in our lives that is so total that we can do many things even from that still place ts elliot has a wonderful line in one of the four quartets where he talks about the still point where the dance is so that's really what we're interested to find so how can we bring what can we bring to our time here to facilitate finding that place of presence or safety in our lives so a little more from nature last summer for the third time i taught in the vicinity of a fairly significant forest fire when i when i was teaching with gil frunsdal and john travis at vishrapani and this has happened to me as i said a couple of other times 
um, when the fires have been close enough so that we were actually under evacuation alert, which was not true last summer. And those fires reminded me, teaching, you know, here we were, teaching and uh, sitting and walking, and the airplanes would go by, and the first time at Mount Madonna there was actually ash dropping down on us from the fire that was nearby. And so we were being this, this heart of stillness and settledness as people around us were, you know, doing what they needed to do to be ready. And they, they told us they wanted us to stay there because we were sort of the still heart of all of this busyness. And it, they reminded me, as I reflected back on these, of the, there's a Jataka story. The Jataka stories are stories about the lives of the Buddha before he was a Buddha. And so these are sort of training lives, if you, if you will. And in this particular story, there's a fire, a big forest fire in the forest where there's this little parrot who lives. And so he's flying up over the forest and he's looking down and he's seeing his home, you know, his forest, his beloved forest is burning. And he's seeing all his friends, the animals, the different animals who live there, running around trying to figure out what to do about the fire. He's very, very distressed. And he flies around and he, if he flaps his wings and scratches his head if he could, what can I do, what can I do? And, and um, the big old eagle comes along and and what can I do? And the eagle says, there just isn't anything that can be done. And finally the parrot, sort of in despair, goes over to the river and he dives in and he gets all wet. And then he flies back over the forest and he flaps his wings just as hard as he can. And you know, a few drops of water fall down and they sizzle. And he goes back to the river and he dives in again. And he comes back and he flaps his wings just as hard as he can. And he just does that over and over again. And the eagle comes by again. He says, what are you doing? This is crazy. It will never be of any help. You are just nuts. And the parrot says, I don't care. I just have to do what I can do. It's all I can do. So he dives in again, he comes back and he flaps. Well, meanwhile, up in the realms, up above all of this, the gods are watching in the story. And one of them is so touched by this little parrot who's just doing what he can do, that he begins to weep. And his tears, of course, fall, and fall as rain all over the forest, and his tears put out the forest fire. So it's a lovely story. I've always liked this story a lot. And um, so here you are, you're sitting here, and in this case, you don't have a real forest fire, but we do have, I think, probably the fires of the mind and the heart, whatever you brought with you. And like the parrot, the work of your retreat is to do what you can do, even if it doesn't seem like so very much, you know. And sometimes it doesn't. It's like, sit here and breathe and be with my body and feel my sadness or my grief or my anger or whatever's up. It just doesn't seem like we're doing very much. But it's what you can do, and it's what you're invited to do and instructed to do. So some things that might help. This is a list, you know, the Buddha has lots of lists. And this is not actually the Buddha's list, this is Mary Grace's list. And it's one that I actually rather like, and I, I assume that the Buddha would like it if he were still here. So three things on this list. Curiosity, confidence, and contentment. 
So these are three qualities that I think could be really helpful as you explore your situation here, as you become better acquainted with your resting place and as you're doing what you can in order to put out the fires. So curiosity. My grandson, my oldest grandson, when he was little, used to come tearing into rooms and he'd put his little hands on his hips and he'd look around and he'd say, what's going on in here? And I've always loved that, you know, what's going on in here? And, you know, children are endlessly curious, right? What's going on? They always want to know, what's going on? What's going on? Sometimes we add, as adults, the extra piece of, why me? So that's not always, not always so helpful. But curiosity is often what brings us to practice, I think. It might even have brought you to this retreat, you know. And sometimes as we're living out our lives, and they, they you know, they're difficult, these lives, the, the illnesses and the injuries and the job loss and the career change and the fatigue and the children and the relationships and all of those things. What is going on here? What is going on here? And so we can't figure it out. And it doesn't, it doesn't even always seem like there's much point. You know, somebody once said that even just being alive is like getting on a cruise ship and going out into the ocean in order to sink. You know, that's it. Because that's what's going to happen, right? Sooner or later, we're all going to sink. And so why? What can this possibly be all about? Why am I never really happy? Why do I go around in circles? Why doesn't my life work? You know, and so often out of this place of despair and not understanding and trying to figure out what what is here, you know, that place of curiosity that's still kind of trying to figure it out, we begin to practice. We begin to practice. You read a book, you go to a class, you have a friend who's been to a sitting group or to Spirit Rock, or, and you end up coming to a retreat. And so then you come to the retreat, and you sit here, and we say, bring your attention to the moment, and meet this moment with interest, with curiosity, with friendliness. What's here? And, you know, there's seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and the mind itself. That's about all there is. And we say, go right up close, be intimate with your experience, penetrate it with your awareness, be interested and curious. What is this? What is it to breathe? What is a breath? You know? Can you remember once on a a retreat, my teacher telling me to go find six things that I'd never seen before about the breath. I thought, this is crazy, you know. It's just a breath. But you know, after a while I noticed, oh, look, a little bit this, and I noticed that, and I noticed the hairs in my nose blowing in the breeze, and it was, you know, got quite interesting. All of the Buddha's instructions, everything that you hear here, All of the teachings of the Buddha are intended for the investigation of your own heart and mind. That's what you're supposed to use these for. You're supposed to take them and check it out, find out how is this in my own heart and mind and body. Be curious, 
is what the Buddha says. What is the nature of my experience? What is it to have a body? What is it to be a human being? What is this mind thing? What, is it, what happens when I really pay attention to my mind? What happens when I really pay attention to my heart? One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who teaches the diamond heart work, taught us that curiosity was, is one of the most valuable spiritual tools. I really love that. You know, and, and the quality of investigation is one of the qualities of the enlightened mind. So to really investigate, to really be interested in your experience. Our experience is to be attended to, it's to be investigated, it's not to be identified with it. So here you are today giving your attention to the breath and some to the body. And you know, you could breathe as though you'd never breathed before. You know, maybe you're a space alien in a human body what is this breathing business that they do? You know, what does that feel like? And to be curious. What becomes really interesting, when, when we do this, we begin to realize that the why me part actually isn't anywhere near so useful and interesting as, as exploring the conditions that give rise to our experience. It's important as you do this to let go of the notion that you know. You know, it's like, oh yeah, breath. I know what a breath is. You know, here you are. You're of a certain age. You've breathed a gazillion breaths, right? And we assume that we know what a breath is. So it's very, very important to let go of that notion of knowing. When we meditate, we actually have the opportunity to step outside of our normal, everyday, I know where I'm going and what I'm doing kind of thinking into, into the, the still center, if you will, into the shamanic realm, into the realm of mystery, um, and the realm of not knowing. Some might even dare to say that this is the realm of Nibbana, of awakening. And we begin to find some, some um, confidence in that realm. One of the things that has happened in my life in the last couple of years is I've developed a, a um, quite active interest in astronomy. Pretty much any, anyone who sits with me these days has to listen to astronomy stories. And every day, I go to a website that I completely recommend to all of you called the Astronomy Picture of the Day. Some of you probably know it. And every day there is some incredible image of galaxies or nebulae or star clusters and talk about, you know, billions of light years away and all of that kind of thing. And it's very, very apparent that whatever the picture is, it's very, very big. It's very, very big. And as I started to do this regularly, I try to make it the first place I go when I get on my computer, whenever that is in the day. I began to call, use for myself, the name Little Speck. 
because it was really, really clear that whatever it is to be human is really infinitesimal. And so that's, that's a way of really training the mind to go towards what is going on here. I have no idea. And you remember that we talked last night about how important it is to have that beginner's mind of not knowing, you know, and, and no matter what level your experience is to be a beginner. So when you're here, you know, if you find that you're in a moment of confusion, you don't know what's going on. You don't even know who you are anymore. You know, what is this? This is great. You know, that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. So it would be really interesting to see, could you relax into that? Can you just not know for however long it lasts? And to bring that curiosity to it. You know, there's, there's, it might be, you might not know what to do next. You might not be remembering the instructions. There might be pain in the body. Maybe it's your pain or your sadness or your fear or your joy that comes up. You know, can you just soften into the, to the not knowing and into the confusion and see what happens. And often, many people find that when we do that, when we soften into that place of not knowing, that place of suffering, then actually we suffer less. We're not so identified with it, we're interested in it. And so we train the mind and the heart to meet our experience with, with curiosity and not with reactivity and with kindness instead of judgment. No, this is the way pain is. This is the way confusion is. This is the way being utterly lost is. And see it and explore it with that kind of curiosity. In time, and it might even already be a bit true at the end of the first day, we develop some confidence in our practice. You know, even those of you who were brand new last night have a better sense already tonight of what it is to be on a retreat. You know? And so we, we begin to develop some trust in our own experience. And all of you already have some confidence in your practice. You would not be here. You would not have gotten your bodies to this retreat if you didn't have some confidence. And for some of you, it may be that kind of confidence that gets inspired by the teachings and the, the practice of others, you know, and, and you do, are trusting what people have told you or what you have read. And some of you have sat those many retreats and have trust in your own practice. It's not wrong or egocentric or inflated to have some sense of confidence. You know, we have confidence in our cars, right? If your car is performing well and you know, it's been reliable, you, you trust that it's going to get you from here to there. And if you're walking down a trail and you're familiar with it, you know that it will, it will go where you want it to and it will be the kind of trail you can walk on. If it's a trail that you've never been on, you don't have that kind of confidence. You have confidence in a trusted guide, you know, someone who's informative, who doesn't get you lost. And we have confidence in our own skill. Some of you are probably skilled at different things, tennis and dancing and piano playing and computers. And so you, you come to trust, you know, I know how to do this. And so here, gradually, we develop some confidence in the, in the Dharma, in the teachings and in the Buddha himself. And so 
you know, with that confidence, we return, we, we know that it's time to return, just like the sea turtles do, you know, we come back to this tide pool, we, we have the confidence to come back to a safe haven again. And as we practice, one of the things that you might already have some intuition for, or you might consider if you don't, is that sitting itself is actually an enlightened act. Sitting itself is an enlightened act. The place of safety is actually the place of attention. It's really important to see that. The place of safety is the place of attention. And so, you know, unlike those poor sea turtles who have to go back to the same geographical place, when we begin to realize, oh, there's there's refuge in attention, there's refuge in mindfulness, you also begin to realize that your refuge is very portable because it can go with you wherever you go. And we develop, that will bring a lot of confidence to your practice as you begin to see that. And you may begin to find that you really can rest in that place of mystery and not knowing and or the place of confusion and lostness. And, and you know, sometimes it's so much easier just to relax into not knowing instead of feeling like you have to figure it all out, you know? And um, you can be willing not to know what it all is. So as we are able to do that, as we're able to relax into this place, then also then what begins to arise is contentment. And contentment is really important in, in this practice, that place where we're balanced just with what is. You know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, this is the way it is, like that shine at the monastery that I mentioned last night. And we, we rest with whatever is here in this moment, contented with it, not, not needing it to be anything other than what it is, you know. And that's the place, I think, where we're also not so busy, even when there's a lot going on. We're present and we're contented, and there's a lot going on, you know, and we're home just about anywhere because we're contented and it's easy to be the way it is. So friendliness to your own experience is actually really important in developing contentment, to allow your mind and your heart to be exactly the way it is. Now this isn't such an easy practice, you know, some of us, like myself, tend to be fairly aversive people, and I often don't like where I am or what I'm doing or, you know, whatever. And so I'm not very contented. You know, there's something wrong with it. And if you're not an aversive type, you might be a greed type, in which case, you know, you want something else. You know, it's not, it doesn't have quite enough, and there's always the need for whatever it is that you don't have. So here, you know, it's a great practice to be contented with just what you have. And not only that, you get to practice to see if you can be contented with the retreat you're getting this time. You know, we talked about that a little last time, because no one ever gets the retreat they ordered up. You know, it's like a bad restaurant where the orders are constantly getting mixed up. You know, you may have come in and said, okay, I want quiet, and you're getting confusion, and someone else has said, I'm ready for the confusion, let's go. 
they're getting quiet and someone ordered bliss and they're getting grief and someone came in thinking they were going to do a grief retreat and they're getting bliss. It's always like that, you know, it really is. I mean, trust me, ask Howie, you know, we, we, we hear this all the time in interviews, you know, gee, I thought I was going to weep the entire time I was here and I'm just so happy. It's not the retreat you ordered up. And so can you be with whatever retreat has come to you? We let go when we do this of the idea that everything has to be a certain way and we're swayed less by desire and aversion and that place where it has to be the way I ordered it, you know, that place where I am the center of the world is not so important. Galway Cannell has a wonderful poem. He says, Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So each evening, the sea turtles, who are following some deep instinctual leaning, come home to rest in the safety of their pool on the Hawaiian beach. And so the question for us here is, can we, by bringing really careful attention to our own experience and situation, by bringing attention to the body and the mind and the heart, find that secure resting place that is not busy. Can we bring curiosity and confidence to our time here so that when you return, which you will, and as the sea turtles do to the busier oceans of your life, that we have some sense of the rhythm of activity and rest in the entire mind-body complex. And then, you know, we also then carry out with us that sense of contentment and the refuge of seeing clearly. So I wanted to read to you for the last poem this evening, a poem from Liesl Muller. And she calls it, What the Dog Perhaps Hears. And this is a poem about, that really understands that if we really go into our experience, maybe there's more there, you know. If you could hear the way a dog hears, what would you hear? So she says, If an inaudible whistle blown between our lips, you know those whistles that you can buy for dogs that you can't even hear because they're so high-pitched, but the dog hears them. If an inaudible whistle blown between our lips can send him home to us, then silence is perhaps the sound of spiders breathing and roots mining the earth. It might be asparagus heaving headfirst into the light, and the long brown sound of cracked cups when it happens. We would like to ask the dog if there is a continuous whir because the child in the house keeps growing, if the snake really stretches out at full length without a click, 
and the sun breaks through clouds without a decibel of effort. Whether in autumn, when the trees dry up their wells, there isn't a shudder too high for us to hear. What is it like up there above the shut-off level of our simple ears? For us, there was no birth cry, the newborn bird is suddenly here, the egg broken, the nest alive, and we heard nothing when the world changed. So this really invites us to be fully, fully present with our ordinary experience, allowing it to unfold itself. So you're invited to give each moment your fullest attention. What might be there? What might be there? So let's breathe together for a moment. Just sit just the way you are. Don't fancy yourselves up. (laughs) If you can only sit in your special posture, this probably is not all that helpful. You need to sit any way you are. Take a couple of breaths. What is this breath? What is this body? So thank you very much for listening this evening, and we have about 45 minutes of walking. It's a little damp outside, so remember there's the lower walking room as well as the upper one and the foyer out here, and um, I'm sure you can all find a dry place to walk, unless, of course, you want to walk in the rain. So please enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.